book. And we just completed chapter 15, which was this huge, powerful, sweeping, theologically uh, profound chapter on the resurrection. How Christ rises, how you and I are going to rise again, how we're going to have these great bodies, how we're going to rule and reign with Jesus And then Paul, in the very last verse of chapter 15, brings us back down to reality. He takes our heads from the heavenly clouds and puts us right back into our place and says, in the here and the now, before we get to that, before Christ comes, before you have these glorified bodies, before you are risen from the dead, there's stuff to do. There's work to be done. Instead of looking so far into the future, let's be about today's business. And so if you remember, and if you want to just turn back to chapter 15 and verse 58, this was the the verse that Paul concluded with that great chapter. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, because Christ is alive, because he's coming back, and because you have life in him, be steadfast and immovable. So if you remember from last week, when it comes to the faith or the mindset or the Christian's belief system, what do we do? Which we talked last week means nothing. Remember that? When it comes to our belief system, we stay the course with what the Bible says. For example, the Bible is or the, the world is pounding into our brains that men and women are very, very similar. In fact, there is no difference between men and women or male and female. The Bible says that is absolutely not true. So when the Bible says in the mindset to stay the course, what the Bible is instructing us is not to adopt the, the world's systems, the world's beliefs. If you notice, look at verse 13 and 14. We're going to attack them next week. But he says, be on alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. So there is manhood and womanhood, male and female, and we all have differing roles within society and the church and the home. God has called us to that. The world is also telling us that there is no God and that we've just come from a, you know, a single cell organism. We were just this spot of, of goo that somehow transformed into a beaver and that beaver turned into a bear and that bear has now turned into you. And so we've come really from nothingness. Now the world is pushing that. The Bible pushes that there we are theists or we believe in God and that God is the creator. And not only that, but that God loves you and you were created in his image according to his likeness and he cares for you so much he sacrificed his son so that you can be with him forever. So it's this profound thought process. When it comes to our belief systems, we do absolutely nothing. We stay the course. Now, when it comes to ministry, look at what Paul says. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. The Greek word for always, guess what it means? Always. It's the same word. Always be about the Lord's business. Always be serving, always be active. So, and the opposite of the mindset, we are not to be static, but we are to be in motion. We are always to be active. Now, the motivation behind our mindset and our ministry is what? Do you remember from last week? Look at it. Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So the whole chapter, Christ is coming back and who's coming with him? 
Therefore, all your work, your current mindset, and your current ministry is not in vain because when he comes back, what is he bringing? Us and rewards. Remember the Bema Seat? He's going to then bless us for our work in the body. So then we looked at the area of giving last week, and now we come into basic principles for abounding in the work of the Lord. And so we're going to study verses 5 through 12 and then verses 15 through 24 today. And so there are two commandments, two commands, sorry, in this text, and both of them are specific for that time period. In fact, there are no commands. There are no didactic teaching. Paul is not telling us to do something. But when we read this text, we can produce or deduce actually that there are principles or truths or ways in which we minister correctly so that we can abound in the work of the Lord. See, the Bible says every word is what? God breathed and inspired God breathed and what what's the big kicker not only did God create the word of God but what does the word of God produce it is what profitable in every way to equip the saints you remember that so this text will equip us through these general principles of ministry so we'll read them and then we'll go through it uh first Corinthians chapter 16 verses uh, 5 through 12 and 15 through 24, how to abound in the work of the Lord. Let's go in verse 5. Paul writes and he says, but I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing. For I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. For he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. So do you see the principles just flying out of those texts? Probably not, right? But let's look at some real general principles for abounding in the work of the Lord. And I'll give you the first one in verses 5 through 7. It requires full-time work. Ministry or abounding in the work of the Lord, number one, requires full-time work. Now, I know that's mind-boggling and hard to conceive, but who would have thought that the work of the Lord means that you and I actually have to work. But this is the truth. God has called us for good works. Do you remember that? Remember last week, you were saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. And then the reason why in verse 10, 
For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So you have been created for the purpose of producing a return on God's investment. That is your ministry, your purpose. When you do it, who receives glory? God the Father. Let your light shine, light so shine before men that they see your what? Good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So coming back to chapter 16, verses 5 through 7, we're dealing with this idea of working hard in the Lord. Now look at 5 through 7, or 5 through 6, sorry, and look at how hard Paul is working. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps... I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. One thing about Christ, one thing about his apostles, one thing about the early church, they were about the father's business. They were really active. Take that and now compare it to Southern California Christianity where the softball game or little league soccer or NFL football or Fill in the blank is so much more important than the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord comes so secondary, and I know that because as volunteers, I see showing up late, not doing good, not being diligent, not really working hard. And I pose the question, if you did that at your employer, would you have a job? They say no. And then I say, why do you do that to God? And they look at me with a dumbfounded face. We have this idea that God gets the scraps, and then our kingdom is built and gets all the priorities. And David had the exact opposite mindset. Remember, he's building this mansion for himself and his heart is broken because he sees this beautiful house of his and he looks at God's house and it's a tent. And he's saying, how can I dwell here and God is dwelling there? And so David had the mindset, the heart, and God blessed him for that. We are called to have the very same thing, to work hard because we want to and we will to, and God will give us the surplus. Now, who are our examples? When it comes to Christianity, who's the number one example we look to? Jesus. Now, turn to John chapter 6. Now, this is an example of working hard in the ministry. John chapter 6, verse 38 through 40. Jesus tells us, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Now here he's introducing the resurrection from the dead. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus instructs us that he come came into this world, and what? whose mission was he there to fulfill? His father's. And not only that, every word he spoke, where did he hear it from? His father. So he came with his without his own personal agenda, without trying to build up and hype up his own name. Now with that, let me show you a one 24-hour sneak peek into the ministry of Jesus. We are going to look at one 24-hour period, and I want you to see his labors. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 21. Mark chapter 1, 
and verse 21. This is a 24-hour window. They went into Capernaum. So Jesus and his disciples went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. So we have Jesus teaching in the synagogue. Now go down to verse 29. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew, James and John. So finally, Jesus can put up his feet, have a little bit of R&R. &R. Verse 30. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying with a fever, sick with a fever. And immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand. And the fever left her and she waited on them. So he preaches. He then goes to the home of Peter and he heals. Now look at verse 32. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. So Jesus preached he went and healed at peter's house and then he's at peter's house and they bring the entire city to be healed now look at verse 35 in the early morning while it was still dark jesus got up left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there simon and his companions searched for him and they found him and said to him everyone is looking for you and he said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into the synagogues throughout all of Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. Is that a busy 24 hours? That's our example. Now think of it. Christ came to do the work of the Lord. Christ died, buried, rose again, and then what? He didn't just stay here and then die again. Christ rose from the dead and then what? Ascended to the right hand of the Father. Where does the work of the Lord go? It's not done. Where does it go? Christ transferred his labor to whom? Not at first. Christ transferred his labor to whom? The apostles. And then look at the life of the apostles. Did they work hard? Did they work hard? You better believe they worked super duper hard. Look at our example from Paul the Apostle. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9 and 10. So Christ, he finished his work on the cross, but the work of the Lord still needs to be done. He entrusts it into the hands of faithful men, the apostles. Look at what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove in vain. But I labored even more than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which is in me. Now flip over to Acts 20. The scene in Acts 20, Paul has been in Ephesus 
for a long time. He planted the church. He's building the church up. And now he's going to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to be persecuted and he knows he's going to end up in chains. So Paul is now leaving the Ephesian elders and he's giving them their final marching orders before he takes off and never sees them this side of heaven. So Acts 21, uh, starting at verse Let's start at verse, what do I have up there? Do I have, oh yeah, starting at verse 20. Thank you. I don't know how you guys knew that. Let's start actually at verse 18. And when they had come to him, when the Ephesian elders had come to Paul the apostle, Paul said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. So Paul is saying with tears, energy, anguish, all kinds of effort, I taught you I went house to house. I went publicly. I fought the Jews through persecution. I withstood. I didn't hold back. I didn't withdraw. I kept going even an adversity. Now, look at how difficult this was. Look at his, the hours that he worked. Verse 31. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And I now command you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. And I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands have ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And in everything I showed you by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the Lord, the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed than to give or it's more blessed to give than to receive. How long was Paul day and night pouring into this church? Three years. Imagine that. And the time he wasn't doing it, what was he doing? Working with his own hands. In other words, he had a nine to five. And then a, uh, the nine to five revolved around the ministry. It's an incredible thing. If you look at Acts, I think it's 18 verses one through three. Acts 18, one through three. After these things, he left Athens and he went to Corinth. So this is Paul's journey, and this is when the Corinthian church was founded. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers, or literally leather workers. So Paul, he worked with his hands, but he realized that his his career fell and revolved around God's word. Because the question comes, how can I be full-time work, full-time ministry, full-time dad, full-time house, keeping of the house, full-time friend, full-time everything, when I have a finite amount of time and resource? I can't be full-time to everybody. It just cannot be. So God, if you are calling me to be this active, how can I do it? 
Am I going to have to be up 100 hours a week? How am I going to do this, Lord? And I think the answer is perspective. And it really is a, a switch in mindset. For example, we've been going through 1 Corinthians. And we started, and if you remember all the way back in chapter 1, I said when we start examining the church, we're going to see how the church should be, and then we're going to see how the church in America actually functions, and we're going to see that they may not align. For example, the church is not a property. How many people, if you ask the Christians, what is church, they'll point to an address. The church is not a property. Number two, remember the church is not the pastor. He is a very small sliver of the big pie. He's a very small proponent of the work of the ministry. Think about that. That's mind-blowing. And then remember, who are the ministers? In America, we say it's the pastor, the guy with the robe. The Bible says, who are the ministers? You are the ministers. Who are the ones responsible for the ministry? The American church says it's the pastors and the board. What does the Bible say? You are responsible for the work of the ministry. I'm responsible to get you ready for it. So we look at the the church and it's like mind boggling and it's really mind numbing and mind blowing. And so we think about that. And so how can we fit ministry into everything else? It's the change in mindset. See, Paul saw his full-time job revolve around ministry. I would guarantee you if we went around the room and asked, we would think ministry revolves around our full-time job. In other words, we would prioritize how to make money over how to serve God. When the Bible says no, it is completely flipped over opposite. It's a change of mindset. In other words, if you are called to be a minister and ministers serve and the church is the people, then wherever you go, what are you doing? Serving. Wherever you're going, you're out there being active. The mindset is, I don't serve on a Sunday morning. I don't serve on a Wednesday night Bible study. I'm not serving when pastor's around. I'm not serving in a small Bible study. I am a servant. Therefore, I serve anywhere God has me to be. Now turn to Matthew 28, and this is spelled out so clearly. Matthew 28, it's the great commission, not the great suggestion. This is the great call for every single Christian. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In my opinion, the American church, we have messed up this verse with one word. I think there is one word that has tragically shifted us way off course. Anybody want to take a a guess at what that word is? Go. The word go. You see, Jesus, when he says, go therefore to the nations, make disciples in all the nations, immediately what are you thinking? I have to go what? Somewhere. And when I get there, what do I do? Make disciples. So the going or the great commission is tied to the destination. So if God's called me to Africa or God's called me to Indonesia or God's called me to Polynesia or God's called me to some other Asia and he's called me, 
when I'm here, go and make disciples in other nations, what am I doing? I am waiting for the call and then I'm waiting to get there and then I can wait to get going. Problem. The time from when you're saved and baptized to the time you actually get up and go, how long is that before you're actually making disciples? In fact, most Christians never do because most Christians are on step one. What does God want me to do? I'm here, you know, God, I'm staring up at the sky. What do you want me to do? I'm waiting for a voice. I'm waiting for a billboard. I'm just waiting for any sign to tell me. He's already told you. Go. Now in Greek, and here's the important part. It's not getting to your destination and then beginning. Jesus says, in your going, make disciples. More accurately, in your going, be making disciples. In other words, wherever you are going, your job is to be making disciples. So if God's called me to Africa or Indonesia or Polynesia or some other Asia, I begin making disciples now before my foot ever gets to that foreign land because I am a minister and by definitions, by definition, ministers minister. So wherever God has you, the PTA meeting, the, the gym, the construction site, wherever, the school, the school. I remember talking to a security guard and she's telling me, I have to go to the mission field. I have to go to the mission field. And we were working at a high school here in Fontana. I said, look up. You're in the mission field. Look at that flag. That flag doesn't represent God. Look at that sign. That sign doesn't represent God. 99% of these kids have no idea what they're doing. Their entire life is wrapped up in sex. Their boyfriend, what uh, Lady Gaga or whomever is doing, their entire life is completely off base from what God has called them to. I said, ma'am, you're in the mission field. In your going, at your job, you are called to work and to be making disciples. This is our calling. Always be making disciples. Now, here's the question, or actually the good news. If God has equipped you, if God has called you, if God expects you to be making disciples wherever he has you placed, then the good news is God uses ordinary people. And we can say amen to that. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things if they are willing to put in the work. And that's the point. If you're willing to put in the work, God will use you. Flip over to Exodus 35. I want to show you a couple examples of some ordinary people who purposed in their hearts to serve the Lord and God used them in extraordinary circumstances. The first one you've probably never heard of. His name is Bezalel. Anybody hear of Bezalel? Well, Bezalel is a very ordinary guy. Do you know what his profession was? He was a construction worker. He was a metal worker, he was a woodworker, and he was a stonemason. He was a ordinary guy. Listen to his story. Now, God in, in Exodus 35, he's stirring the hearts of the people of Israel. And what he's doing is he wants to make his tabernacle and his tent of meeting. Why did God want his tent of meeting? Anybody know? And the tabernacle. Why did God want those with his people? And not only a symbol, it was his presence. Remember in the tent of meeting, God and man met. So God wanted to be with his people. 
God desired to dwell with his people. So he stirred it and he commanded the people to one, raise up money, and then two, be able to construct the ark and the tent of meeting. And so all the money and all the gold that the, the, the Egyptians had given to the Israelites, they had came and they had now offered it up to Moses to create the ark and the tent so God can meet man right where they were at. They had so much money so much gold and wealth that Moses went to the people and said, stop giving. The workers said, we have enough resource, stop giving. So meanwhile, God's stirring the hearts of all these people. And there's a gentleman that he, he works in the heart of named Bezalel. Now look at his story. Exodus chapter 35, verse 30. Then Moses said to the sons of Israel, see, the Lord has called us by name. Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, from the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all craftsmanship to make designs for working in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for settings, and in carving wood, so as to perform every initiative, any inventive work. The Holy Spirit came upon this man because he was willing to help. And where did the Holy Spirit gift him? Was it in preaching the gospel? Was it in bringing people all over to be saved? How did God equip him for the work of ministry? With his hands. God equipped him to work with his hands and be able to bless God and his people through his labor. He's a very ordinary man. And God is going to be doing extraordinary things through him. Verse 34, he also put in his heart to teach both he and Oliab, the son of Esamach from the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with the skill to perform every work of an engraver and of a designer and of an embroider and blue and in purple and in scarlet material and fine linens, a weaver and a performer of every work and makers of design. So God equipped them. God then called them or commanded them to build. Now it is in whose court, the balls in whose court to actually get it done. These two guys, right? This guy, what's his name? Bezalel and the other guy, Oliab. Now flip over to chapter 39. Chapter 39, verses 42 and 43. So chapter 35, there's construction. Chapter 36, there's construction. Chapter 37, there's construction. Chapter 38, there's construction. Chapter 39, the work site is finally coming to an end. Look at verse 42 and 43. So the sons of Israel did all the work according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And Moses examined all the work and behold, they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. This they had done, so Moses blessed them. Notice their work. They were anointed. They purposed in their heart to serve God. They served God in an ordinary way through the work of their hands. And then what? They did the work. They did the work exactly like God called them to. Their work was then examined, and then they were blessed. Remember last week, why do we work hard? We work hard because Christ is coming back. And then what does he do? He examines our work. And if we did it exactly like the Lord commanded, what happens? 
we receive the blessing. It's this beautiful prototype of our situation in Christ. I want to show you another one. Flip over to Acts 16. And now we're going to look at an ordinary woman. She was a businesswoman, but God through ordinary people does extraordinary things if they will in their heart to serve him. Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she had, and when she and her household had been baptized, she urged the, urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Paul goes and there's some women at the riverside and he starts preaching the gospel and a businesswoman, a successful businesswoman responds. She responds, she gets saved, her entire household is saved and they are baptized. Immediately, what does she do? She's right into ministry. What is she prevailing upon the apostles and those joining? And at first, they probably said, no, we're okay. No, we have somewhere else. No, we have somewhere else to stay. But what does she kept doing? Over and over and over. She was tenacious. Kept going and going. Come, come, come. And finally, they yielded. Now, Paul and Silas, they leave her house. They go into the city. And then they are persecuted. And they are beaten very badly. And then they're thrown into the jail cell. And you remember, they're broken, they're bloody, they're bruised, they're tied to the walls. And then Silas and Paul start praising God. An earthquake happens, remember. They come out of the jail cell. Look at verse 40. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So Paul and Silas, they went into the town. You had other company who actually stayed over at Lydia's house. So she's cooking for them. The meals are done. Uh, They're being well taken care for. She's exercising this gift of hospitality. Paul and Silas come back bloody. And where is home base? It's her house. And the brethren were there waiting for her. Who were the brethren, do you think, waiting? Look at verse 1 of chapter 16. We know one of them. Yeah, so Timothy was there. Paul saw Timothy in chapter in chapter 16, verse 1. Now Timothy is along for the ride. Now here's another guy that was there being blessed by Lydia at her home. Who wrote the book of Acts? No, not Paul. No, not John. No. Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts. Now check this. Look at the person that he's writing in. For the first 16 chapters and even into chapter 16, I want you to notice something. Like let's say, let's check it. It's uh, chapter 16, verse 6. Notice the person that he's writing in. They passed through Phygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysa, where they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of God did not permit them. So what person are we talking? What person are we talking, RG? Third person. Meaning, what can we gather from that? If he's writing third person, is he there or not there? 
He's not there. Now go down to verse 10. Same chapter, verse 10. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran straight a straight course to Samothrace. So what person is this? So what is that telling us? Luke has finally arrived. And now Luke, from here on out, is first person writing eyewitness testimony of the book of Acts. I only bring that up to show you that we know that at least Timothy and at least Luke were in Lydia's house being blessed. And then Paul and Silas come, they're encouraged in her home, and then they are sent out. Bro, she's been saved one day. And she's already had Luke and Timothy and Paul and whomever else in her house serving them faithfully. She's been saved one 24-hour period. This is why we're called to work hard in the Lord. We got to move, folks. All right. (laughs) Principle number two. Look at verse uh, six or seven through eight. And here's another principle for ministry. Abounding in the work of the Lord requires tenacity. And we saw that in Lydia, how she continued to want to have the apostles stay over at her house. It requires tenacity or to be opportunistic or to be capitalistic for the kingdom of God. The idea is seizing every opportunity, walking through every door. Look at seven and eight. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So Paul now has the, that little angel on his, on his shoulder and the little devil on his shoulder. He has two choices or two paths. Path one, verse seven, is the easy path. Path two, verses eight and nine, is the hard path. Now look at verse seven. Look at his first choice. I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. So option number one, he goes to Corinth and he stays with the church. And he hopes and he wills to stay with the church. He says, I hope or I'm looking forward to that opportunity. Now, option one, stay with the church whom he loves, whom he will be safe with. And we know Paul loves the Corinthian church. Chapter 14, even though they were a mess, sorry. First Corinthians 4, verse 14 and 15, Paul writes and says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you had countless tutors in Christ, yet you would have no, men, not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have become your father through the gospel. If you remember chapter 15, verse 58, he says, therefore, my beloved brethren. He loved the church. Option number one, don't abound in the work of the Lord, but go have some R&R. Now, if you were Paul, strenuous missionary journeys, You've been attacked, beaten with rods. You've been stoned nearly to death. You're chased by the Jews. You're chased by the Gentiles. You're chased by robbers. You're hungry. You're tired. You've been shipwrecked, bitten by a poisonous snake. You have all these things. Very easy to say, I'm going to go to Corinth. I'm going to go out to the sea for a couple days. We know that it's late spring, so it's spring break time. 
beautiful weather in Corinth. I'm all in, right? I've worked so hard. A little bit of R&R. Option one. Look at option two, verse eight and nine. But I will remain in Ephesus, Ephesus until Pentecost. Now, two reasons why in verse nine, he doesn't go with option one. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me. That's number one. Here's number two. And there are many adversaries. So why did he go with option number two? Because there was opportunity to win souls. He saw Ephesus and he saw a gold mine of spiritual wealth. He saw a gold mine for the kingdom. He saw so many people with the opportunity to be saved. The door is wide open for him to walk through. He realizes it. The harvest is ripe. He just needs to come and harvest and pluck it out. So he says, there's too much opportunity. There's too much for me to just pass up. Now, all of us thought the R&R week sounded fantastic. But now looking from Paul's perspective when he's in glory, which was the right choice? Number two, because he's bearing fruit. And that fruit he is now enjoying for eternity. So he had an option, a week or a couple weeks of rest and relaxation or in-your-face ministry, knowing that there's adversaries, there's persecution. But if I go route number two, I will bear much fruit. And Christ is coming back. And who's coming back with them? We are. And what is he going to give you? Rewards. So while you're here, make as much for God as you can. Be tenacious. Be opportunistic. R- uh, RG, sorry. Sorry, RG. John, why did Paul go into the synagogue every single place he went? Because he was opportunistic. That's really what it was. There was a law in the synagogue that any male traveling rabbi could have the pulpit. So what do you think Rabbi Paul turned apostle of Christ is going to do with that platform? He is going to use it for God's glory. That's what we are called to do. If you are in a position of power, use it for God's glory. If you're a foreman on the construction site, use it for God's glory. If you're a school teacher, use that authority for God's glory. Use it, exercise it, infiltrate and permeate the world. This is our calling. Be tenacious, be opportunistic. When God opens the door, you better run right through it. Paul saw it and he charged after it. He went to the synagogue because of opportunity. Why did Paul go to Rome, stand before Caesar, and ultimately be beheaded? Opportunity. See, Paul's in Jerusalem. He's almost killed. And then what does he do? I'm a Roman citizen. And Roman citizens come with some fantastic benefits. One of them being, I can appeal to Caesar himself. Now, imagine being able to appeal to the most powerful man on planet Earth. That's an opportunity, especially when you have the good news. Paul saw that. He took his shot. It didn't necessarily work for Caesar, but Philippians chapter 4, guess what? Paul is going to be executed, and you know what he's saying? He's counting all joy, the blessings God has given them. And then he writes, Caesar's household, the saints in Caesar's household greet you. What does that mean? 
that he was able to infiltrate even Caesar's household. And some of Caesar's slaves and family members and friends were saved with the gospel. Folks, that is tenacity. That is taking every opportunity. I want to show you one more. Look at Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, verse 19. Acts 14, 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. We'll stop there. When it's saying Paul was stoned, it's not talking recreational. It's not talking anything with some kind of drugs or substance. When we're talking Paul is stoned, he is being executed the Jewish way, which means they usually stood on a platform about five to 10 feet above the person, and then they will hail or throw softball-sized stones at the person's head. That's the idea. It was a form of execution. So they sought to execute Paul. So they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up, and entered back into the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. So if you were beaten in the head with rocks, what would you do? See, I would get up and I would check myself directly into Loma Linda or Kaiser Fontana. And I'll be pressing that little button like I need that pharmaceutical cocktail. You know, why Why is this pain relief not kicking in? I'd be doing that. What does Paul do? He gets up, shrugs himself off, goes right back into the city, preaches the gospel, and many disciples are made. You want to talk about tenacity and opportunity. That man did it. And it wasn't only him. You go look at all of these smaller figures or characters in the Bible, and all of them are operating under these same principles. Be tenacious, opportunistic for God. Now here's number three. So it requires tenacity. It requires full-time work. Number three, it requires full-team work. Verse 10 through 12. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him away in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. So we look at a guy named Paul the Apostle, this, this great saint, probably the one who has bore the most fruit of anyone outside of Christ in, in any existence. He labored more than anyone. He completely devoted himself to the point of martyrdom. This guy gave it all. And yet what you see with Paul is an incredible teammate. You see him emphasize the power and the importance of teamwork. You see, I've met a lot of pastors who have incredibly powerful and big ministries, and some of them have this kind of air of superiority or this idea that, they built this with their own hands or that, you know, their, their stuff doesn't stink or they can do no wrong. Now, when you look at someone like Paul, 
who has the gall to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Literally live like me and you'll be doing what Jesus did. To have that and to see him follow through with that way and never want the spotlight. Never say, I'm the man. This is my ministry. You see Paul forever delegating. He is always sending this person here, sending that person there, sending this team to go pick up money here, sending this person to go teach and preach over there. He is so concerned with the church and he is constantly all about that teamwork. So he can't go to Corinth. Why? Remember? Why can't he go to Corinth? We just read it. He's in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? Because there's a great opportunity and he's the only one who can combat this kind of persecution. He's the only one who can, who can defend the saints when it comes to doctrine and this type of persecution. So he must stay there. So he then wants to send Timothy and Apollos in his stead. Paul never went at it alone. If you think about it, he had Timothy, he had Luke, he had Silas, he had John Mark, he had Chloe, he had uh, Aquila and Priscilla and all the churches who would give to his cause and all the people who would bless him so that he didn't have to go and make tents. He had so much work, uh, you know, uh, work behind him. You look at someone like a Billy Graham. There's a stadium of 60,000 and there's a million people watching on television. And you see one man standing up <clears throat> with one mic and one voice, and one word, and he preaches, and you think to yourself, oh, Christianity is a, is a uh, solo event. It's a solo sport. It is not. How many hundreds of thousands of people behind the scenes were inviting people, driving people, helping pay for the event, uh, getting the arena, having people sit down in the seats? How much labor went behind what that one man with one word, with one mic was doing? We are never in it alone. And there are some Christians who think that they are strong enough to go at life without the church. This is foolishness. This is exactly what Satan wants you to believe because he gets the wounded away from the pack and he can devour. You stay in the pack, their safety. You stay in the school of fish, their safety. You get out of that, the predators are coming. So Paul knew the importance of teamwork and he called on Timothy and he called on Apollos to do the work of the Lord. So when it comes to Timothy, he says, now if Timothy comes. So we read the if and we think, well, he may come or he may not come, right? But the Greek word is when. Now when Timothy comes. So if you have like an ESV or you have an NIV translation or you have a new King James, it will say when Timothy comes. Now it's not an if because we know he's coming. Look at chapter four, verse 17. First Corinthians four, verse 17. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So Timothy is already on his way to Corinth. He's already making his way there as Paul is still penning this letter. And he says, when Timothy comes, see that he is without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work. As also, as I also am. So here's another thing about Paul. He knew his teammates well. 
He knew his teammates well. Timothy was a timid dude. He seemed to be very quiet. He was a younger guy. And when you read Paul's writings, he just seemed very unsure of himself. And he was called to some very heavy positions. He was called to minister to Corinth. He was called to be a pastor at Ephesus. He was called to the missionary journeys alongside Paul. He had a very big ministry, but he was a very timid person. So Paul would have to write him and say, God has not given you a spirit of timidity, but he's given you a spirit of power and of love and of a disciplined mind. Hey, Timothy, you don't have to be timid. Because God has given you so much more. So look at what Paul's doing here. He's instructing the church at Corinth, don't chew my boy up and spit him out. Please be good to him. Now, what kind of church do you have to actually say that? How bad do you have to be where you actually have to instruct your congregational members, hey, treat the traveling pastor well. Treat the guest pastor with respect and with love. Who would actually have to say that? But this is the condition of the church at Corinth. So Paul is telling the church, when it comes to Timothy, see that you're not causing him any problems to be afraid. For he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. Paul said to Timothy, he's like-minded just like me. There is no one who cares for the saints more just like me. Timothy was a spitting image of Paul, but Paul was bold. Timothy was not. And so Paul was always looking over Timothy's shoulder to make sure he was never being taken advantage of. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. So Apollos, completely different guy, not soft, not timid. He's very, almost macho, very powerful, especially when preaching. Paul says, hey, can you, can you head over to the church? They, they kind of need you. And what'd he say? Nope. Nope. Can't do it. I'll do it when I have a chance. And so Paul, you can see, using his teammates, using teamwork to expand the ministry. Now go back to chapter 12. Chapter 12 and verse 7. You were given, remember the spiritual gifts, a manifestation of the Spirit for what? The, The common good. That's why you were given spiritual gifts. Then you were also given spiritual gifts to edify the church. Now, remember what we said of spiritual gifts. How many Christians possess them? Do we all have the same gifts? Do we all have the level of giftedness? Are we all required to serve? Does it matter what gift you have? You guys got all the answers right. You remember chapter 12 perfectly. Now, think about that. You were given spiritual gifts to glorify God, to bring about common good, to build up the church. You have a gift guaranteed, if not more. You are called to use it. It doesn't matter what gift you have or what level you have. You're still called to the purpose of the ministry. Can the foot say to the hand, why have you made me that way? I want to be like that. So you can't say, well, because I don't preach, I'm not of value. The foot is important to the body. Without the foot, the body is not optimal. And that's the key point, optimal. Without the hand, the body's not optimal. Without eyes, the body's not optimal. You see, when every single person, we come together for the common good, 
for the singular purpose of doing the work of the Lord, then we can do great things. Because teamwork makes dreams work. That's right. Now, quickly, we're going to look at these, these principles in living action. Look at verse 15. Running right through. Verse 15 through 24. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. So do you remember the three principles? Requires full-time work, requires full teamwork, and requires it's okay. Tenacity or opportune, being opportunistic. Look at this in the life of Stephanus and company. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. So Achaia is 75 miles away from Corinth. When Paul is saying, you three men are the first fruits, what is he saying? The first, why well, I can't hear my son's crying. They were the first ones to receive Christ as Lord and be filled with the Spirit. They were the first fruits. Now, did they stay there and just say, okay, I'm going to just, you know, grow on my little pew? You know, I'm just going to grow roots. I'm going to have my butt sit on there for the next 30 years. And then when I die, face the Lord. No. What did they do? They got saved. They were the first people in this congregation. And then they left traveled 75 miles to go to Corinth because they heard there was a need and look what they did. And that they devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. The word devoted means to restructure your life. It literally means to regiment. Now, if you have a regimented life, you get up at the same time every day, you exercise, you eat the same meals, you're ultra regimented. What you've done is you've reprogrammed your life to bring about a certain output or certain actions. There's a reprogramming. This guy, Stephanus and company, they came from Achaia to Corinth and they reprogrammed their life. They devoted themselves. They completely upended their old regiment and created a new one. For what purpose? To minister to the saints. Now, I want you to think about this because these are real men. They get saved and then they go 75 miles to another town or another city. So unlike today, you can't get there in one hour. It probably took a, a few days worth of travel to get there. They upended their life and then their entire life was reprogrammed or rededicated for one purpose, to serve the saints at Corinth. That is incredible. That, folks, is full time worth. I mean, full-time work, that is full teamwork, and that is tenacity and dedication. Look at verse 16. That you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. The work is the Greek word for collaboration. So they came and they collaborated and they labored, which means they worked till their bone, worked to the bone or they work literally to the point of exhaustion. 
these three men came, changed their entire life, dedicated to the saints, and then they worked collaboratively together for the purpose of working to the point of exhaustion. Now look at verse 17. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. So they came, they labored diligently, and what did they do? They saw the needs in the church, the areas that there was lack, and then they refreshed them, which literally means to replace what is missing. They saw things missing in the church. Maybe it was worship. Maybe it was fellowship. Maybe it was preaching. Maybe it was evangelism. Maybe it was prayer, whatever. They saw holes in the church and then they replaced it or they fixed it. They patched the wall, if you will, in the building of God. They began to meet needs. They changed their life. They served until, you know, they were blue in the face. They worked together meeting the needs of the saints. That's an example. Now, 19 through 24 is our post-salutations. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. We were going to go look at Aquila and Priscilla and look at how they met every aspect of these principles. Just read the word of God and find out for yourself. Verse 20, all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Why did Paul always or oftentimes write that at the very end? This is my own writing, or this is my own signature, or this is my own uh, final greeting or post-salutation. Like a signature? Yeah. Okay. The seal. So I think RG is more on the right track. What was it, RG? He used the scribe. And now here's the theory. When Paul went to Galatia, he got sick. We don't know what sickness it was. Many people believe malaria because after that, when Paul starts his epistles, at the end, he always writes and he'll write something like he did to the Galatians. Look at how big these letters are or look at how large I am writing. And the idea is he was going blind or couldn't see. So he had somebody scribe it. And then like uh, Chad said, then he would write his own little thing to verify that it was actually coming from him by the hands of people that he has personally sent. So here again, he does the same thing. Hey, this is to verify most likely because it was hard of sight. Then verse 22 through 24, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed or an anathema. And then the word maranatha, which means, oh, Lord, come. And then lastly, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. amen. Let's pray and go to communion. Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that we can go verse by verse through the entire letter and take our time and really pick things apart. And God, we're not done. We still have chapter or verse 13 and 14, which is so precious that we want to take our time. And so, God, would you have our way with this church? And, Lord, we want to prepare our hearts and our minds right now for the table. You have commanded your church, Lord, that if we don't take the Lord's table in reverence, if we don't take the Lord's table in relationship, 
we don't take the Lord's table in holiness, then we should not take the Lord's table. And so, God, I prepare that you would begin to minister to us and you would be able to convict us and show us of our our problems and our foibles. And, God, that you would encourage us to repent and to get right so that we can serve and receive communion. Lord God, as we take this time as a church to personally pray and to be right with you and to thank you and to rejoice of your coming, God, would you minister through your spirit right now? that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.